We pray, O God, that your law will be planted deep within us, that what we do and who we are and even how we worship, the spirit with which we worship might affect us and cause us to be more fully the people you're dreaming us to be. We pray for your larger world. We pray for our sister churches around the community. In this moment, we pray that we are aware and awakened by that which you most desire for us, which is your law hidden deep within our hearts, lived out in our lives. Through Christ, who came for us, we pray. Amen. Tomorrow at this time, I will be uh, arriving in Texas and then catching a ride with a friend to a location, an undisclosed location, uh, about 50 miles beyond where the cell phone towers reach. It's a wonderful place. And late at night, I'll go out into the pasture, and there will be all the stars, and I'll look up, and I'll think to myself, the stars at night are deep and bright, deep within the heart of Texas, and I'll look up and think, gosh, I wish I'd not gotten kicked out of Mrs. Bonslav's ninth grade science class when she was teaching the constellations, for I don't know any of them except for the Big Dipper. Mrs. Bonslav was a stern but wonderful teacher. She had a set of rules that she went by, and she was fair, but she, was, she had rules, and you had to follow her rules. It was her way or no way, and you either towed the line or you sat out in the hall for the rest of the class. It was Mrs. Bonslav's task to try to teach this ninth grade class about constellations, and so she did a wonderful thing. She um, created a kind of planetarium there at Van Buren Junior High School inside of our class. She blackened all the windows. She blackened the window on the door to the hallway. She even had a little rug that she put over the uh, threshold to make sure no light got in. She put all the desks up against the wall and put a big tarp from one side of the room to the other that served as sort of a, a, a sky, if you will. In the middle of the room, she put our chairs in a circle. In the middle of the room, there was a desk and a, a light, a lamp that, that lit very brightly. And in it were little pinholes that when it projected up on, the, up on the canopy became the constellations. It was really pretty amazing. She didn't take into account, though, what might happen when the lights went out. And... So that day when the lights went out and some of the boys began to get out of their chairs and crawl around in places they weren't supposed to be, um, chaos kind of broke loose. And it all came to a head when someone bit a girl on the leg and she screamed and the lights came on and Mrs. Bonslav saw what was going on. You will all be punished for this, she said. Now, let's just suppose, let's pretend for a moment, that one of the guys from my ninth grade class, Chet Moeller, the honor student, was absent that day. 
Maybe he was sick. Maybe he was getting some award. Uh, For whatever reason, that day that all the bedlam broke loose, Chet wasn't there. But suppose that Chet arrived the next day and learned about what had happened, raised his hand and said to Mrs. Bonslav, I will be willing to take the consequences for the actions of my classmates. I'll take their punishment on on their behalf. I got to tell you, that would have been a sweet moment. (laughs) It was springtime. The winter, the, the, the snow that in Dayton, Ohio, arrives about October and stays until March was just starting to melt. We could just feel the first hints of springtime, and it would have been so sweet to have not have spent the rest of the semester in detention. We would have been so grateful to Chad and even to Mrs. Bonslav for being willing to transfer the punishment from us to him. It would have been nice to have walked by Chet sitting by himself every day in detention, alone all those weeks as we went on with our day. But surely, he would have also felt kind of odd that she would punish Chet. He wasn't even there. His form of, her form of justice is what's called retributive justice. It is where someone has to pay a penalty or pay the fine for a crime that's been committed. But to punish Chet for us would have felt outrageous. I mean, you can't just transfer responsibility from one person to another like we did food in the cafeteria from one tray to another. You can't just swap it out, can you? And to say that She was going to punish him as a way to send a message to the rest of us, to scare us. That wouldn't be justice. In some circles, that would be called terrorism. Terrorism is where you do something to someone else to make sure you get the message. I make up that little story because I think it parallels the explanation of Jesus on the cross that many of us were raised on. It said something like this. God, like Mrs. Bonslav, is just. God has rules. And when, starting with Adam and Eve, but with all of us, we've sinned, we've violated those rules. And so Jesus came into the world and said, I will take their, their guilt. I will take the, the crime that they've committed. I will accept it as my own and take their punishment as my own. If, and if we believe him, we're forgiven and all is well. I think that we bought into that idea, and I have to say every part of that is true, but it's the construction of it and the nuance of it that I think sometimes confuses us. But many of us have never really questioned that construction because we're so absorbed in our sins. We're so guilty for our sins. We feel such shame, and we've been told that God is a scolding God that we've We've accepted, and i got to say, if it works for you, that's good. If it's making you behave, I guess that's a good thing. But at some point, you begin to think about it. And you begin to ask yourself if this picture that we painted is consistent with the larger picture of the sacred God that we know, this holy love. Do these hang together? Is God a terrorist? 
Does God send a message to us by crucifying Jesus? Would God really go along with retributive justice? Retributive justice doesn't heal anything. All it does is punish. The gospel suggests that God is something other than just a punisher. God is something more than simply an accuser. In fact, the Bible says very clearly God is not the accuser. The Bible says the devil is the accuser. God is the one who comes along to provide a different way. To acknowledge, yes, we are sinners, not as an accusation, but as a diagnosis, so that we might be reconciled. We might be awakened, called into a new way of living, having our lives and our faith and our relationship with God restored and healed. We just sang about it. These words from Jeremiah. I'll make a new covenant with you. I'll write the words of my law, not just on stone, I'll write them on your hearts. This love and intimacy of the one who is for us, always, always for us and on our side. What if we might think anew about the why of the cross? Why did Jesus die on the cross? What if we began to think of the why of the cross less as an act of retributive justice? Someone's got to pay. Sort of this divine uh, necessity that blood must be shed. What if we began to think of it as something other than payback or righteous indignation and begin to think of the cross of Jesus as an act of forgiveness? of absorbing our sins and being an antidote to the poison that sin creates, not only in our lives individually, but within all the systems and cultures and ways that we live together. I've come to realize that the cross of Jesus is, in a sense, his embodiment of the message that he taught his disciples from the very beginning. Early on in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to his disciples, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn and offer the other. If someone wants you to go one mile and forces you to go one mile with them, you, you go too. If someone comes along and demands your shirt, you offer to give your pants along with it. It is a kind of spiritual jujitsu. It is what Glenn Stassen called transforming initiatives. It is taking that which comes to us as evil and turning it for good, for healing, for redemption. It turns the aggressor's strength another way, and in doing so, it neutralizes and transforms. I want to suggest this is exactly what Jesus is doing as he hangs on the cross. This has been God's way from the very beginning. I love the story from the book of Genesis of Joseph and his 11 brothers. They're sick to death of his 
dreams, his stories that he tells. And so they conspire together to take from him his coat of many colors and and throw him into a pit. And at the last minute, they decide instead of killing him, that they will sell him into slavery. Can you imagine selling your brother into slavery? They take his coat, they put animal's blood on it. They take it home to their father and say, oh, sorry, your, your son has been killed. And they presume that they'll never see that Joseph again. Decades later, there's a famine in the land. The 11 brothers have to go south into Egypt. And who should they find there? But their brother who was sold into slavery, who's now risen through the ranks and is now in charge, second in command behind the Pharaoh, they don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And it's one of those moments where retributive justice would have been absolutely understandable. These ones who sold him into slavery, who so dishonored what it means to be brothers together, it would have been perfectly understandable for Joseph to have retaliated against his brother, but instead he redeems the situation. Why? Because he understands this is the very heart of God. You intended it for bad, he said. But God intended this for good. I think of those thieves hanging on the cross on either side of Jesus. The angry one trying to demand of Jesus that whatever power you've got, let's see it, let's do it, let's get back at these guys. Save yourself, save us from this situation. Let's get out of this situation. But the other thief says, hey, wait a second. You and I were here, we're getting what we deserve. We did the crime, we're going to have to do the time. But this one, he doesn't deserve this. He doesn't have to be here. He could have avoided this. And you think about it. He could have avoided the cross. He could have bypassed Jerusalem that Passover. He could have called down the angels. He could have argued with Pilate or Herod in the courts of law. But he didn't because he was up to something. He was up to the kingdom of God. And so saying more than he knew, the thief on the cross said to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Your kingdom. John Howard Yoder says, here at the cross is a man who loves his enemies, whose righteousness is greater than the Pharisees, who being rich became poor, who gives his robe to those who took his cloak, who prays for those who despitefully use him. And then he says this, the cross isn't a detour or a hurdle on the way to the kingdom. It's not even the way to the kingdom. The cross is the kingdom come. Turning that which was meant for evil into a tool of redemption. The kingdom of God is where sin isn't just punished. Sin is forgiven and healed. Where evil is not just masked. Evil is destroyed so that who we are really can come forth. It's not retributive justice. It's restorative justice. 
redemptive justice. We read it at the beginning of the hour from Paul's letter to the Colossians. That in Christ all things hold together. And through him God is pleased to receive all things, whether in heaven or on earth, to make peace through the blood of his cross. It's what he does. It's who he is. It's the kingdom of God. I made up that earlier story about Chet Moeller from my junior high, but I've told this story before, and it's a true story. It happened at the end of our junior high years when it was time for the freshman farewell dance. A couple weeks before the end of school, we were all invited to cast our votes for who we wanted to be the king and queen of the Van Buren Junior High School class of 1968. We decided we would all vote for our friend John, and then we we got together a bunch of guys and thought, wouldn't it be funny if we all pooled our votes and voted for this girl who was sort of the outcast of our class. Her name was Teresa Bova, and we thought that was a funny name because it sort of reminded us of Bovine, and she was a girl with a big gap in her tooth, and she didn't have very nice clothes, and they always kind of smelled badly, and Her hair was always greasy, and she was kind of sullen, as you can imagine. So we all voted for Teresa. The night of the freshman farewell, we gathered in the school gymnasium, and I'm sure I was looking really cutting a pretty good look, all five feet of me. My Beatles haircut and my freckles sticking out of my face like someone had gotten after me with a brown magic marker. I wore a Nehru jacket, and I was looking pretty good. And I was sure that some girl would surely want to come up and dance with me without me even having to ask, but it, it never happened. Um, we were having a great time, and about halfway through the evening, the lights came up in the gymnasium, and they said, uh, it's time now to announce the king and queen for the Van Buren class. The freshman farewell king is John Apple. We all applauded. John's a good guy. The queen for the 1968 Van Buren High School freshman farewell is Teresa Bova. And we went crazy. We clapped, we whistled, we stomped. And what made it even more delicious for us was that Teresa didn't know it was a joke. And she was dancing and clapping and laughing. And she was so very happy. As the class cheered, the lights were dimmed, and the spotlight came on in the center of the dance floor. The principal said, now it's time for the king and queen to have their king and queen dance. And John Apple realized for the first time that he was going to have to dance with Teresa Bova. Dance with Teresa Bova? I, I, I can't dance with Teresa Bova, he thought to himself, and he panicked. And in this split second of panic, he looked around and didn't know what to do. So he ran out of the gym and hit the door. I remember the sound of that crash bar as he ran out the door, and we didn't see him again for the rest of the evening. And in that moment, I realized 
that this joke had gone badly wrong. Therese was standing in the middle of the room. And out of the darkness and into the light of the spotlight stepped another guy from our class named Chet Moeller. Chet was a quarterback of the football team. He's a handsome guy, one of these uh, all-American kids. He extended his hand to Teresa, and they began to dance like Cinderella and Prince Charming as we all watched in amazement. When the dance, when the song ended, Chet stood and talked to Teresa, and the music began again, and they started dancing together again. One song and then another. They talked and laughed through the evening. You might say that Chet atoned for our sins. You might say that he absorbed our sins and carried our shame and righted our wrong. You might say, as Paul said of Jesus, he reconciled all things. I will tell you that Teresa was changed that night. But not just Teresa. We were all profoundly changed. You might say we were born again. Curse to me, that's 44 years ago, and it feels like yesterday. For 58 years, I've been hearing Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins. But to see the why of the cross in a new way, to have it explained and offered in just a little different way, it's, it's like seeing it again for the first time. He reconciles all things. He makes all things new. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. We've considered the mysteries of your death on the cross many times, Christ. May it strike us that you have absorbed our sins. And may the mystery of your love wash over us and change us. Open our eyes and allow us to see how our sin affects this world and everything around it. And then, allow your love in us and through us to transform this world. In your power and in your name we pray. Amen.